So the last two Sundays we've looked at Jesus' encounter with the people of Samaria as he visited a woman at the well and as he then went into town and spent a couple of days there and began to teach and expose to the Samaritan people who he really was and we learned from God's word that many believed in him. And it was a great indication that the good news that came when Jesus was born was not exclusive to the Jewish people, but it was for all people. It was God's intent that the Jewish nation would evangelize the world and that Abraham, who was promised to be a blessing to all nations, would in fact be a blessing as all nations live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. As we continue in the Gospel of John, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture here today about the nobleman or the royal official. Our passage here is going to be 4, verses 43 through 54. And as we think about John's Gospel as a whole, and most especially the prologue that we studied for the first several weeks as we began our study in John, the Gospel of John could be called the Gospel of Belief. It is John's stated purpose that his readers would come to believe in, would come to have faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We will see this many weeks down the road in John chapter 20, as John is beginning a conclusion to his book, and he says, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So the gospel of belief is not about an intellectual understanding. It's not about an academic study. It is a belief and a faith that gives to us life. Jesus is the source of life. He is the wellspring of living water. And it is in Him that we are given eternal life in and through his name. In the Gospel of John, that word believe appears over a hundred times and it almost always means faith in Jesus Christ, not an intellectual understanding. Faith is, after all, the pathway to a relationship with God. It is, a, it is what allows us to become His children. It is what allows us to be spared from the consequence of our sin. It is what allows us to have eternal life with God. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. And it is that faith that enables us to come to Him. In fact, as we'll see in just a few weeks down the road in John chapter 6, as He was dealing with the people, in John 6, 28 to 29, He was asked by the people, What then shall we do so that we may work the works of God. And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. And so John's Gospel is the Gospel of belief, and unbelief is the damning sin. It is the unpardonable sin that prevents us from ever becoming the children of God and knowing life in His name. At its core... Unbelief is a rejection of the saving truth of God contained in Scripture. Apart from having faith in what God has prescribed that brings to us our salvation, there is no eternal life. And so unbelief is rooted in a rejection of this revelation. It is a rejection of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. As we read the Gospels as a whole, 
They are filled with examples of those who have placed their faith in Christ and the many, many, many who did not place their faith in Christ. Our passage today is about one such individual who came to realize that Jesus is, in fact, who he claimed to be. Let's read together in John chapter 4, 43 through 54. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever had left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So we're going to look at our passage of scripture here in four different sections. We're going to look first of all at the setting. The setting is very simply, Jesus is returning back to his home region. Jesus returns home, verse 43, after the two days that he spent in Samaria, one, uh, the encounter with the woman at the well, and then two days in the city, he went forth from there into Galilee. Into Galilee. So, after many had come to faith, Jesus continues his journey into the region of Galilee, remembering that they took the direct route through Samaria, rather than bypassing them on one of the coasts. So generally, Galilee was favorable to him. It is estimated from a comparison in all the gospel accounts that Jesus probably spent in the neighborhood of 16 months there. John only records this one event and all the time that Jesus spent in Galilee. Now we know from the other gospel accounts that it was in Galilee that he had healed a demon-possessed man. It was there that he healed Peter's mother-in-law. It was there that he healed a leper and a paralytic. He healed a centurion's servant. He healed Jairus' daughter, a widow's son, a dumb man, a blind man, the woman who touched him. Regardless of all the miracles that Jesus performed and all that the people saw him doing, there were still a significant number of people who rejected him And Jesus was, as the prologue tells us, rejected by his own people. So Jesus is returning home to a people who do not accept him. He says in verse 44, John is a summary of Jesus' entire ministry, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and was raised in Nazareth, and it isn't trying to pigeonhole where Jesus did and did not receive honor, just in the specific village of Nazareth. 
But his own country refers to the region of Galilee as well as all of the soil that would be the home to the Jewish people. Now, you may say that I live in Kenneth Square, but you are a resident of Chester County and of Pennsylvania and the United States. And so collectively, we are of this great country, even though we may live in a very small portion that we call home. So when Jesus says that he did not receive honor in his own country, he means the nation of Judaism as a whole. So in Galilee, Jesus sat in the synagogue, as the other Gospels record, and declared himself to be the Messiah. And the question was, is this not the son of Joseph, whom we saw, who we've seen raised up, who is the son of Mary and Joseph? So because of that, they could not accept his testimony And because of this challenge they had, by and large, the people of Galilee and the people of Jesus' own country rejected Him as the Savior. We see this account in Luke chapter 4, verses 28 through 30, when Jesus declared Himself to be the Messiah. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove Him out of the city and led Him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw Him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. So very early in the account that Luke gives to us, Jesus' own people were seeking to already put an end to what they thought was this heresy, and they wanted to end his life and to end his influence. So as John includes this in his account, he is perhaps preparing his readers for the widespread rejection that Jesus is going to encounter, even though he doesn't chronicle it to the same detail that the other gospel writers do. So there is this overarching barrier of unbelief, not only in the gospel of John, but in the gospels as a whole. So as you look at these barriers of unbelief, the first one is a lack of exposure. It is the unbelief of those that have been prepared to receive Him, and haven't yet heard the truth of the Gospel message. I can tell you from my own own account, I was raised a heathen. I didn't go to church. You could have quoted to me John 3.16. I couldn't have told you where you found that in your Bible. I knew nothing about the Bible. But when I heard the Gospel, and God had removed the blinders from my eyes... All I needed was just a little bit of exposure to the truth about who He is and about what He has done on my account. Andrew and John, in the beginning of John's account, are great examples of this. As they are disciples of John the Baptist and they see Jesus walking by and John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And immediately, John and Andrew become followers of Jesus Christ. Some people don't believe yet simply because they haven't been told the truth about who He is and what He has done for them. Secondly, there is a lack of information. These are people who are less prepared than just simple exposure to who Jesus is, but they must hear His words in order to be persuaded to give their lives to Christ. The Samaritan woman and the people of Samaria as a whole are great examples of this. She was not necessarily impressed with this presence. 
knowing that he was a rabbi, it was not until she heard him speak saying, I know that you are not with a man who is your husband and you've had five husbands. And that reality penetrated deep into her heart and exposed to her that there was something very different about this individual. And as they go back into the region of Samaria and the city hear the words of Jesus, many give their lives to Him in faith. Three, there is a perceived lack of evidence. Put a circle around that perceived because it's very, very important. As we know, we can look around at the natural world that God has created and it screams of a divine being. To think that something came out of absolutely nothing by happenstance and the absence of some kind of divine being is the most ludicrous kind of faith that could ever be expressed. When you examine the complexity of the, and the interdependency of the human body and to think that it just evolved out of some basic life form like bacteria is ridiculous on its face. So there is a perceived lack of evidence and there are people who need to see definitive proof or empirical evidence that there is a God and that Jesus is the Son of this God and that He actually did live and die to pay the ransom for mankind. For these kind of people, seeing is believing and they need to have physical, tangible proof in order to give their lives to Christ. Now, There are some who get that proof in ways that you and I cannot readily understand nor explain, but it still happens. God still works miracles in the lives of people in such a way that it gives further evidence of what His entire ministry was about, declaring that He is who He claimed to be, the Messiah, the Son of God. Four, there is a lack of willingness to believe. And this is by and large where the, where the world is today. There is just simply a patent rejection of the claims of Jesus regardless of any evidence or proof or testimony that you could ever give to another individual. You know, I am not an archaeologist buff. I don't read all the journals. I don't study all of the evidence. But this is what I do know. There has not been a single archaeological discovery that has ever disproven anything that has been written and recorded in our Bible. Yet in spite of that, there are many who say, I need more proof. I need more evidence. And the reality is, there's never going to be enough evidence to convince them to give their lives to Christ. This kind of attitude describes, for the most part, the Jews in Jerusalem. They understood His teaching. They saw firsthand with their own eyes the miracles that Jesus performed, and yet there was nothing that could ever persuade them to place their faith in Christ. Could you imagine seeing a little boy bring a basket of fish and bread to Jesus and watch him just continually break it over and over and over and over and over to feed an estimate of 25,000 people that we're going to look at down the road and people say, He is not the Son of God. He is not worthy of my faith. So Jesus is going home He's going to a place where they do not accept Him. They do not honor Him. 
but they do enjoy his miracles. Jesus is a spectacular show. They've never seen anything like it before. They are amazed. They are intrigued. They are interested. So in verse 45 it says, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Now, that's a little bit of a misleading summary that they have received Him. And when you go through and study the words, it doesn't mean that they have accepted Him. It means that they have welcomed Him in the hope that He is going to continue to do the miracles that they saw Him do at the feast and then afterwards when He stayed there for a short period of time. They had been impressed by His cleansing at the temple. They were amazed at the miracles that He performed that John does not record for us. So the people have great enthusiasm for His coming because they're expecting the miracle worker, this one who entertains them, to put on a big show, but they're not necessarily going to give their lives to Him and place their faith in Him. So that's the setting. Jesus is going home to a people who do not accept Him, but they love His miracles. Number two, big section here, the encounter. The encounter here is the royal official, the nobleman. Verse 46, therefore he, the nobleman, excuse me, Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. So returning to the place of his first miracle, Jesus is sought by a royal official whose son is sick to the point of death. Now this royal official, by the best accounts that scholars can come up with, was most likely a servant of Herod Antipas who was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the ruler of Palestine when Jesus was born, and his son, Herod Antipas, was the ruler at the time of Jesus' ministry. So this royal official is likely a servant of Herod Antipas. He is wealthy, he is privileged, he has access to the best of the best of everything, but even all the privilege and all the access and all the influence and all the money that he had could not make his son well. You know, it's kind of a, a surprise to me that the human race continues to exist when you read how people were treated medically even 150, 200 years ago. You go in and you're sick and they cut you and they bleed you thinking that that's going to do something. Can you imagine looking at the treatment of the ancient world and thinking, man, the human race is really pretty resilient after all. So all the privilege that he had, access of the best of the best, they couldn't make his son well. So this royal official is coming to Jesus and he has a desperate plea. Verse 47 when he, the royal official, heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. This man left all that he had and all that he knew to seek the help of Jesus, this one that he did not know, but he had only heard about. He'd heard about the miracles. He's heard about the spectacle. We don't know if it's a first-hand account. We don't know if it's just the rumors that are circulating. We don't know if he knows people that were there. All we know is that he has left his home. He's traveled nearly 16 miles, which is a pretty healthy journey in those days, to seek out this miracle worker in the hope that he can do something that can't be done for his son 
in Capernaum. Jesus' travel was so popular and so well known that it wasn't difficult to find out where he was going to be. They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have texting. But man, the people knew where he was going to be. In fact, you remember some of the Gospel accounts that Jesus is going across the lake in the middle of the night and by the time he's there, the people are already there waiting for him. How they knew, we don't know, but they knew. And so this royal official is there because he's desperate and he is pleading with Jesus to do something for his son. And so this word implore means a repeated begging. It isn't a simple Singular request, it is a repeated wailing and crying out for Jesus to hear this request and to do something about it. We know that by the tense of the verb that the Greek word is in, that word imploring, it means it is a repeated request over and over and over and over. His son is near death. And he is absolutely desperate for Jesus to go with him to Capernaum and to try to do something to help him. Now when you think about it, you really can't blame the man for begging, can you? If we had a child who was desperately sick and there was no cure and there was no help, we would likely do anything and everything possible to seek help. There are people who have been given terminal illness diagnoses and they travel across the country. They go around the world seeking some kind of an alternate treatment in the hope that they can be cured and they can be healed from their disease. This man loved his son. And he would do anything to try to get the help that he needed. And so if that meant traveling to go find this miracle worker, then that's exactly what he was going to do. So this man, this royal official that we know very little about, possesses at least a rudimentary faith, doesn't bring him salvation, but his faith is expressed in three ways in this little example, in this encounter that he has with Jesus. So he possessed a fearing faith. It's not really faith in the way that you would understand it. It is wishful thinking. It is a hope. It's a Hail Mary in a football game. It's a last resort. He doesn't understand who Jesus really is. But he's heard something about Him. And there is this hope that this guy can do something that nobody else can do. As a Greek individual, he likely believes in a pantheon of gods. And he has most likely sought all of these little G-gods and hope that they can do something, but because they're not real, they can't do anything for Him. It would be like us saying today, those who aren't in a relationship with Jesus Christ, God, I'm in trouble, and if you're up there, I'm hoping you're going to do something to help me out. You ever heard somebody say something like that before? Well, this is the beginning for the royal official, this rudimentary faith in the hope, in the wish that something could be done. His fear brings about desperation. When you and I get desperate, that desperation reveals the depth of our need. I had a great uncle who was a Baptist for all of his life. 
And he was diagnosed with lung cancer. And it was terminal. And there wasn't anything they could do. They had operated. They had chemo. They had radiation. They'd done everything they could do. And there was no diagno- There was no plan to be able to help them. There was not anything they could do. And so in his desperation, he walked away from the Baptist faith and he began to pursue the charismatic philosophy of health and wealth theology. He was desperate for anything that would help him. So our desperation, when we get to the lowest of the lows, when we hit that rock bottom, when we've got nowhere else to look, it reveals the depth of our need. You know, when life is going really, really well, and there's not a lot to complain about, we're not very aware of our needs, are we? But when we come to the end of ourselves, when we, re- when we re- realize our limitations, when there is a lack of power, there's a lack of control, there's a feeling of complete helplessness, there is this glaring realization that we need something that is much, much bigger than ourselves. It is at those times that we truly understand the depth of our need. So desperation reveals our need. It also removes our pride. This is a man who is wealthy. He has, by all accounts, a life of great privilege. He is exposed to the greatest innovations of the day. He may have mocked Jesus at some time. He may have been a general worshiper of the gods, but not really devoted to anything. He may have ridiculed those who were zealous in some kind of religious expression, but now his situation has changed. And so he's taken this long journey, and here he is standing in front of Jesus, begging in desperation for help. So at the very basic, he has a fearing faith. Secondly, he possesses a feeble faith. It's very incomplete. It's very weak. There's really not anything you can really define about his faith. This is expressed in the reality that he's convinced that Jesus has to physically be present in order to heal his son from this ailment. If he can do anything at all, and that's a big if, then Jesus is going to have to be present in order to heal his son. This man does not understand the presence of God. One of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture is an affirmation of the omnipresence of God. In Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. You know, this is a great reminder to you and I, as we try to grow in our faith, as we reach points of desperation in our life, when it's out of control, when we come to the end of ourselves and we realize our true limitation, and we have this lingering question, is God really there? Make no mistake about it. We cannot flee from His presence. He is everywhere, all of the time. And as a child of God, He is not only standing right there with you, He dwells in your spirit through 
the person of the Holy Spirit. He has a feeble faith. Thirdly, he has a fractional faith. If his son dies, there would be nothing more that Jesus could do. He doesn't understand the power of God. He doesn't understand the person of Christ. He doesn't understand the presence of God. And he doesn't understand the power of God. God is the Creator who made absolutely everything out of nothing by the simple spoken word. He is the Creator. He is the one that miraculously has provided for His people the crossing of the Red Sea, the walls of Jericho crumbling around, Daniel in the lion's den. There's so many examples of the power of God that ought to be an encouragement to us that nothing is impossible to Him. As bleak as our circumstances might feel, as hopeless as we might get, we must remember that nothing is impossible with God, for God is all-powerful, all-present, and all-knowing. So as Jesus is getting this desperate plea, there is this word of condemnation that is expressed here. Verse 48, Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Now that sounds callous, doesn't it? Here is this man pleading for the life of his son, begging the God of this world, the Savior and the Messiah, please do something about my son. And he says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Now, it's important to understand something here. This man is not seeking Jesus for his spiritual need. He's not seeking Jesus for spiritual truth that sets him free but for physical healing for his son. His interest in Jesus is not for a spiritual truth, but only for his son's physical need. And so, while this statement speaks to this royal official, we must remember that it also speaks to the nation of Jews as a whole. And we see that in the plural usage of the word, you people. Not you, royal servant, but you, the Jewish people, simply will not believe unless you see a sign. You see, the people aren't really interested in His mission. They're really not interested in His message. They're only interested in His miracles. And so even though this man falls into that category, as does the nation of Israel as a whole, Jesus hears the words this man speaks. But ignoring the rebuke, the man continues to plead his case. In verse 49, And the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now this is a more desperate plea here. It's expressed in the sir, which means Lord. I don't think it means that he is ascribing lordship to Christ. It is a, is a term of respect. In this day and age, and we see that this is not just a son, but it's a child, indicating that it's a young boy. While this royal official likely didn't believe in him, in the kind of faith that you and I would understand, we do see this deep picture of desperation in this man's life, begging with Jesus to come and to save his boy from imminent death. Third section we're going to look at here is the test. 
The test is very short, very sweet. Verse 50, Jesus said, Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. You know, there's not this dialogue that's going back and forth. There's not this conversation between Jesus and the royal official. There's only the desperate plea, the continued begging, this merciful request to be filled. And Jesus, a single time, simply says, Go, your son lives. What he says is, Have faith. That rudimentary faith that brought you to me, you need to exercise now. Have faith and go. You know, Jesus didn't respond the way he wanted. You remember when Lazarus died and the sisters came to him and they begged, they begged Jesus to come and to, and to heal him, to restore him, and Jesus delayed. Didn't get the answer they wanted, did they? Yet... The result was what they had hoped for. You know, it's a tremendous challenge for us when we're at a point of desperation that we think that God is not answering in the way that we would like. And when we encounter those periods in our life, when we are weak, we're desperate, we're frail, we're ready to give up, we have to exercise faith in who He is, that He is a good and loving and gracious God, even if we don't get what we request. So in this test, there's very simply two choices here. Believe and go, or stay and continue to beg. It is a great thing that this man has heard the simple request or statement from Jesus, go, your son lives. And that's exactly what he did. He turned and he left, believing that Jesus would do just as he said. Now remember, this is a 16-mile journey. And it's not likely that he's going to take off that moment. He's likely going to hang around until morning and then make the trip. But his faith in Jesus has been elevated from this rudimentary hope into trust that Jesus is, is going to do what he has said he has done and believing his very simple words. Lastly, number four, we see the result. The result is that the boy was healed. Verse 51 and 52, As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. And so he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Now it's important to understand that the boy not only lived, but he was healed. The fever was gone. You know, you think about ancient custom or cultures and illnesses, when you got a bad fever, a lot of times that was the end. You didn't recover from a bad fever. But the fever had left him and the boy was well and Jesus had done exactly what he had claimed to do, verifying his power over this natural world. But not only was the boy healed, the royal official was saved. Verse 53, So the father knew that it was at the hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed, and his whole household. 
Although this man needed more evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, needing a sign, needing a miracle, the man nonetheless was different from most of the Jews. He had placed his faith in him, and a result of that, as a result of that, his entire household believed as well. Verse 54 is the conclusion of Jesus' time in Galilee. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. You know, each one of us have an opportunity for our faith in Christ to grow as we find ourselves in difficult circumstances. It is in these difficult circumstances that our faith is actually tested and refined, producing endurance so that we can grow in our knowledge of who He is. If in the midst of our difficult trials, if we will simply turn to God's Word and read it and obey it and have faith in it, then our faith will grow. A lot of times when we come to the end of ourselves, we seek psychology, we seek encouragement, we seek something outside of our relationship with Christ. For many of us, when we come to these difficult circumstances, we simply turn to ourselves. And we just try to figure out a way to make it through another day. And we're like good Americans who pull up their bootstraps and just take one step at a time. We know as a child of God, we are called to trust Him and to follow Him and to lean upon Him. Several years ago, I was counseling with an individual who had circumstances that you and I could not possibly fathom. This man came to faith in Christ late. He didn't, leave a very, didn't lead a very respectable life before he came to Christ. He had several children with several women, and he was now paying child support for nine children and had health issues that made work for him incredibly difficult, and yet he wanted to be an upstanding Christian man. And so I would sit with this guy and talk, and talk and encourage him in God's word and show him how to trust the Lord. And as I was having this conversation with him, this thing occurred to me, it popped into my mind. I I guess God gave it to me. But you've heard the expression, there's always light at the end of the tunnel. You've heard that? Right? Well, here's what I want to tell you. As a child of God, there is light in the tunnel. Because God is everywhere. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. You see, when we say something that communicates light at the end of the tunnel, we are denying the existence of God, the presence of God in our life through our difficulty and through our hardship. You see, it is in the circumstances that bring us to our knees where our faith in Christ is going to grow the most. Who will you turn to and what will you do? When life begins to crush you, what will you do when you don't get the answer that you've been praying for? Will you believe? Will you follow? Or will you get angry and withdraw? Let's pray together.
Father, we are most definitely a people of imperfect faith. And Father, we know you know that we are a people of imperfect faith. You have seen all the times that we have turned to something other than you. You see in advance of all the times that we may turn to something other than you. But Father, I pray that as we think about who you are, as we think about the life that you have saved us from, as we think about an eternity with you, as we think about your faithfulness in all the years past, and as we think about all of the rich promises in your word, God, I pray that we would turn to you and you alone, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good regardless of how difficult or overwhelming our circumstances may be. Father, even when you answer our prayers differently than we ask, we know that you are still good. We know that you are still worthy and deserving of all that we have and all that we ever hope to be. But we pray, Father, in this process that you would refine our faith, that you would make us to be men and women who stand unapologetically on the promises that we find in your word, that we find rest and peace and strength in our union with you. May it be so for all your children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.